All right, some love. I dig it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, if you'd like to turn there with me this morning. We had a great time in early service, but I have high hopes for this service as well. You excited to be in church? All right, we're off to a good start. This section right here loves Jesus. The outside will work. I'm hoping that picks up Gary. Come on, man. I was expecting a little bit more. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 13 through 19. Uh, Exegetically, we'll go word by word, verse by verse, down through that context of Scripture. We'll pull it apart. We're going to look at it. And I want to look at three questions when answered that will change your life. Now, have you ever had questions in your life where you just ponder them from time to time? Yes, I think we all have. Uh, I particularly, in the last couple weeks, we've had some things happen in our family, around our family, uh, just uh, things that are hurtful, things that don't make sense. And I think all of us have times in our lives where we come to uh, instances and seasons like that. But these three questions that we're going to look at today, these are questions that apply to every person, no matter the season that you're in in your life today. Matthew 16, verses 13 down through 19. Let's read the scripture. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Are you familiar with this scripture? I think you can raise your hands in church. It's all right. Yep. Many of you are. It's a very familiar portion of scripture that you've probably heard before. To be honest with you, when I was prayerfully considering what God would have me to present today, the scripture continued to come to my mind, and, and God gave me a fresh word on it last night. And I believe as, as preachers, we sometimes get the sermons before everybody else does, which I appreciate that. When we look at the context here historically and Uh, geologically, we see that Jesus took his disciples into Gentile territory. They're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, as the text presents. They were about 120 miles outside of Jerusalem in the northern part of Palestine. Now, understand, in this day and age, they couldn't just hop on the local subway. They didn't have segways. They didn't just group up in a car and say, hey, do you know what? Let's go out in the middle of nowhere and just hang out and maybe have a little Bible study. I mean, this was quite the journey for them. And if you know the topography of where they were, a lot of it was desert. It was hot. It took a lot in doing this. Prior to this in Scripture, we see the feeding of the 4,000. We see Peter's instance where he walks on water towards Jesus. Just prior to that, we see the feeding of the 5,000. We see that they've gone to a number of different lands for ministry purposes. But Jesus, particularly in this scripture, gathers his 12 to bring them out, kind of in the middle of nowhere, to talk to them. To get them alone, to have some alone time, to ask them some questions. Now, this region was strongly identified with various religions. It had been the center of Baal worship. The Greek god, particularly Pan, was worshipped here. He had several different shrines in this area. And Herod the Great had built a temple to honor Augustus Caesar in that place. So here are the disciples. Let's picture this. Let's get some imagery to the context. 
we have these disciples and we have Jesus. He's walked them out there and you're prob- they're probably thinking the whole way out there, like where are you taking us, Jesus? I mean, we were just doing all of this ministry and now we're just walking out here to where there's all these pagan idols, all these statues. Now, if you know about this area, even today, some of these shrines still exist and they're very large. As we look at this, I wanna present the first question. Who is Jesus? You see, Jesus brought them to the center of the world and history to ask them a simple but profound question, and this question still applies for us today. Now, after the context tells us where they are, he tells, them why, tells us why they're there. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Nothing like being tricked out 120 miles in the middle of nowhere to be given a quiz. But sometimes it's when we answer the hardest questions that we have the biggest growth in our life. Notice how he phrases the question. Who do people say the son of man is? Now words matter and this title matters here. Jesus is asking who the son of man is because he is prophetically detailing the deity in which it represents and was talked about in the Old Testament. Saying I brought you here for a specific purpose because there's important questions that you've got to answer in your life. Jesus brought them to the center of the world in history to ask them this question And sometimes Jesus has to take us outside orthodox religion of our day so that we can focus on him and him alone. Sometimes Jesus allows us to see all the world has to offer so we can realize that it's not enough. Maybe you're here today and you don't even really know how you got here. I can tell you when I first started going to church, I thought, man, when they find out who I am, I'm I'm gonna be kicked out of this place. When they figure out I am who I am, they're not going to let me back in these doors. Maybe that's you here today. I don't know. I don't know if you've been here, this is your first time, or if you've been here for for 30 years. But here, Jesus is saying, I want you to focus on me and nothing else. Now, I think at times in our lives, we all struggle with the world and what the world has to offer. Jesus says, I want to take you away from the noise because I want you to hear me loud and clear. This is the best the world has to offer, but yet it's not enough. Maybe you're here today and you say, preacher, that's where I'm at. I'm at a place in my life where I've experienced the world and what the best is that it has to offer. And I've realized that it's not enough. I've come here thirsty, searching for God, and I'm desiring to hear from him loud and clear. And I believe today you will, if you'll just listen enough. You see, he asked this question, who do they say the son of man is? And this title illustrates many things for us but notice that Jesus wasn't a simple son of a man Jesus is the son of man of humankind Jesus is the only begotten son of our heavenly father by which he was sent to save his people from their sins amen preacher that's good preaching you can amen in church does that not excite you I mean you need to check your spiritual pulse if that doesn't move you to think that God sent his only begotten son for you, that you may be saved. When we answer the question, who is Jesus? Scripture tells us, our Lord, our Savior, he is the great I am, the representative of Jehovah God, the one who splits the seas and raises the dead. He is the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. Do you know right now there are hundreds of billions of different galaxies which means there are billions and trillions of different stars that make up the universe in which we abide. 
And none of them would, would continue to exist if God didn't will it at every millisecond of every day, but yet he has you on his mind continually. That blows me away. He's the author and finisher of our faith, the almighty, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who's never failed. He has a perfect track record. Amongst the miracles, amongst the teachings, amongst the traveling, the wonders, Jesus is asking them, what does the world and the history have to say? Who do people say that I am? Let's look at the text. They reply. They take a second. And they said, notice the comma there. It tells us they pause. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This is a well thought out answer by many of the different disciples, right? Because the Old Testament scriptures did say Elijah would return. Some believe John the Baptist had been risen from the dead. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet in which Jesus had compassion. It tells us that he wept over the people, and so some mistaken him as possibly Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But then there's Peter. Peter was a little different of a guy, right? I believe in church today, we, we have Peters. There's a need for Peters. They're just a little bit different. Peter was a little bit different. He was the only one of the 12 that got out of the boat to walk on the water to where Jesus was. Fresh off of walking on the water, straight off of the man possessed with the legion of demons being freed, fresh off of the feeding of the 4,000, we get this picture of Peter. I love scripture because it gives us some imagery. Just picture this in your mind for a second. We have Peter. The other 11 are answering who do people say the Son of Man is? And they're giving their different answers. And then there's Peter. We know he was an emotional figure, right? Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Cut the man's ear off. He was emotional in nature. I just see Peter pacing. The 11, other 11 are talking. Here's Peter. He's going back and forth and back and forth. And I just see Jesus with a small grin on his face. You see, Peter had experienced the wonders and the miracles of God. He had walked and made it most of the way to him when he was walking on the water. And he came to a place in his life where he realized Jesus isn't just a simple historical figure. This man is unlike any other person who has ever lived, and that remains true till today. He makes his confession. Peter responds. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Have you ever answered that question in your life before? See, we're all presented with this question. Who is Jesus to you? Jesus is one of two things. Jesus is either the greatest liar who has ever lived, or he is exactly who he says he is. And that's a question that every person in this room and throughout human history will ever have to answer. I remember when I had to answer that question. Many of you who are saved here today remember answering that question. Is Jared so... Nicely put, I'm just a rough kid from the south end of Philadelphia. I grew up in a burb called Aston. Got another hood member here. I was, I was ready, man. I'm glad you were too. From Aston. My mom, who's present today, worked three jobs to support three kids and had three back surgeries after my dad died suddenly just before my fourth birthday in 1984. Growing up there, I had a lot of alone time. You know, as a kid, if you got a lot of alone time, what happens? You get in a lot of trouble. I ran the streets a lot. I thought that was normal, right? It's what a lot of kids did in my day and age. We just ran the streets. I didn't find out until I got to Baptist Bible College years later in 1999 that it was not normal for your friend's parents to do drugs. 
That was a normal thing for me. I thought you'd go to your friend's house. If you're, I remember going to her friend's house one time and asking him, what's wrong with your parents? And he said, what do you mean? I said, they don't do drugs. Everybody else's friends, their parents, they do drugs. Yours don't for some reason. That was the depravity that I lived in and I thought it was normal, but thankfully God used sports to keep me alive during that time. I remember having the struggle in my life back and forth and always wanting to put my mom on easy street given how much she had to work to support three kids and what she went through. And I was a pretty good athlete. I remember I played for a scout league for a baseball team in southern Philadelphia and we had finished a game one Saturday afternoon. I pitched six innings let up two hits, and I homered in that game. And afterwards, a scout from the Philadelphia Phillies came and he talked to him, and he said, Josh, we've been watching you, and if you stay out of trouble and you stay off of drugs, we're looking at drafting you right out of high school. And he goes through his spiel, and I'm riding home. And the whole time he was talking to me, I was high. And on the ride home, the coach turns to me, and he says, Josh, you're this good while doing drugs. Imagine if you got clean and you played ball, how good you'd be. I thought, bet. For sure, I'm done. I'm just going to stop doing drugs, right? If you've ever been a drug addict, you know that's not how it works. You see, I didn't know I was a drug addict until I tried to stop doing drugs. That's when you find out that you're addicted. So I went home. I was like, I'm done. Done doing drugs. I'm going to focus on my life. I got to get serious now. I'm in high school. I'm going to go pro. This is the plan. Then the cold sweats set in. Then I started physically getting sick. And I went through this nine-month battle where I tried to replace one addiction with another. And every day I wanted to get high, I would go and lift weights. And I lifted a lot of weights because I wanted to get high a lot. And finally, we're, we're in June, about nine months later. And I've been going through this battle within myself, doing everything that I could in a worldly sense to combat the struggle that I was going through. And I was with a group of friends at a party one night. And what we would do for fun, I don't know why, we would go and we would fight other neighborhoods. And we would represent, and it was pretty intense. They would meet beforehand and they would discuss rules of engagement. So we would have a representative go out and they would send one and they would discuss, do we bring guns, do we bring knives, do we bring axes, do we bring crowbars? And we never really brought that stuff because we thought it was cowardly, we thought it was more manly to just go and fight. And that night I said, I'm not, I'm not going to go, uh, I'm going to go home. And they were, they were shocked, but I walked all the way home across town. And as I was walking home, I remember the sunset. And, and that night, I decided that I was going to take my own life. I was going to commit suicide. I went home. I was just quiet to myself. I remember going up in my room and laying in my bed and looking at the ceiling and having this battle going on within my heart and for my soul. And I cried out to a God I didn't know existed. Now, understand, I had spent my entire life knowing about Jesus I went to CCD as a young kid. I had heard about Jesus, but I did not know him personally. There were days when we would do greatly depraved things, and I would go to confession at Mass on a late Saturday night, not knowing if the priest was going to call the cops when I left. I knew all about Jesus. I had been entrenched in religion. I just did not have that personal relationship with him. And that night, I cried out to a God I didn't know existed. I said, God, if you were real... And there's a reason for my life, other than being a gang member or a professional athlete, I need a sign. I need some help here. Show me that you are real, that you exist. So I made a deal with God. You ever make a deal with God? Made a deal with God. I made it really easy for God. I said, God, if it's sunny tomorrow, I'll wait to take my own life. So I eventually fall asleep. I wake up and you know what? It was sunny, but I woke up to a knock on my front door. I go downstairs, and there was a gentleman there by the name of Ed Trinkle. 
who was a local youth pastor, had just taken over for Anthony Milas, who knocked on my door, and he was there with a BBC, Baptist Bible College intern, inviting me to church. And I thought, what a coincidence, right? Reach out to God, they knock on my door, I gotta go to church. So I ended up going, I agreed to go. That BBC intern picked me up every Wednesday, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and for the next six weeks, I was entrenched with the gospel, with church. If you ever come to church, don't feel like you're at a place, right? This is a place of hope. This is a sanctuary of hope. I remember going to church and thinking, I wonder if they'll let me in this week. I wonder, and they, every week they opened the door. They even gave me donuts and coffee. They loved me unconditionally, and I kept thinking, well, this is a good donut, but it's probably my last one. Someday they're going to find out. They already knew church, and that's why they loved me, because they wanted me to experience what they already knew with Jesus. One Sunday night, everybody raises their hands. I know I'm saved, and so I'm like, why am I the only one not raising my hand? Okay, what did I miss? I was paying attention, raised my hand, right? I don't know if I missed something. Guy comes up to me afterwards, says, do you know why everybody's raising their hands? Not a clue. He said, can I buy you a free burger and talk to you more about Jesus? Free food? Sure, let's go. Go to the local Wendy's. We sit, we talk for three hours. We get in the car to leave. I said, we're not moving this car till I ask Jesus to save my soul. I knew my sins and they were many. But I also believe that God is who he says he is and that he would forgive me if I would ask. So I asked. And guess what? God forgave me. God didn't just save me. He changed me. I had rotted my brain with all the drugs I had done for many years. I went from being an honor student to this thing called special ed. I was one of those kids in special education. I didn't understand well. I read at a third grade reading level, but God healed my mind. I picked up a Bible. And I began to read it every day and read through about God's grace. And I realized that God had a plan for my life. This is where I see Peter. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're in this place where you feel you have to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Scripture has very plainly told us who Jesus is. Peter responds, you are Christ, the son of the living God. That is a theological statement. Christ means Messiah. You have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a perfect life to die a horrible death, to conquer death in the grave in itself and ascend to heaven to which he will return for you someday. That was God's plan. And he was on the road in the first phase of his earthly ministry and he had you in mind. Today, I encourage you to answer the question of who Jesus is, but this transitions us to the second question. Who am I? When I read scripturally about who I am, it's not very encouraging, is it? Right? Sometimes we think more of ourselves than we ought to think, right? Well, I'm, I'm bad, but at least I'm not as bad. I do that all the time with Ian Richards, if you know him, if he's in here. I'm like, yeah, I'm bad, but at least I'm not that guy. I love Ian greatly, Ian and Amanda, I'm joking. We should never compare ourselves with other people. The goal is always to compare ourselves with Jesus Christ. What does scripture say about us? says we're sinners, right? You know what I brought to my salvation? You know what I bring to my relationship with Jesus Christ? Sin. That's it. That's what I bring to the table. When salvation took place, I brought my sin and Jesus brought his grace. I am a sinner in need of a savior. All of us are. The Bible says that all have come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Every one of us has fallen short of the mark. But God says if we believe in our heart 
that Jesus is who he says he is, and we will confess that, that we will be saved. With, with the heart one believes, but with the mouth made confession unto salvation. It, am, it amazes me that God loves me in spite of me. Continually moving forward. You know what scripture also says? It says that I'm blessed, that I am loved, that I am set apart, that I am empowered, that I'm commissioned, that God has a plan for my life, that I'm a child of God that has been pulled from the depths of hell and placed into the Father's hand to where I could never be plucked out, that I now belong to the Father in heaven. Isn't that just nuts? I mean, somebody, amen, testify today. You are a child of God. You belong to God. I think about my children and how much I love them, and I know that fails in comparison to how much God loves me. So where does that leave me in salvation? When I come to the place to where I'm at the end of myself and the beginning of, of Christ and his grace, I realize that God hasn't just saved me from something, but for something. No matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, God's not mad at you. God's mad about you, and he's got a plan for your life. He loves you so much that he thinks you're, you're worth dying for, and which he did as he gave his life on your behalf. God hasn't saved you to sit. He has saved you to serve. You're not here today by accident. You know, the Bible says that at the moment that you get saved, that God disperses spiritual gifts into your life. See, God is equipping you for the future it's just what will you do with your present state? Will you give it to God or will you continue to hold on and look at this world and say, well, I don't know. The world has a lot to offer. Monuments will come, but they will go. Jesus Christ is forever. God's word will remain forever. What do we learn here about Peter's confession? Jesus doesn't leave him hanging. I love it. It says that he confesses, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, no comma, responds, answers. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, verse 18, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The moment that we cry out to God, God starts a new work in our life. We go from salvation to sanctification. He begins to teach him. God has revealed this to you. This isn't something the world has revealed to you. This is a spiritual matter in which God has brought to your knowledge. The sanctification process begins. We see with the name change here. His, his surname, Simon Barjona, then he gives him a new name, which is Peter. In the Greek, that is Petrus. It means stone. Many mistake in this and abuse the scripture and say that, that Peter is the cornerstone of the church. He's not. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church, but Peter was a part of that foundation. His faith had led him to this place and realized it wasn't until Peter began to act on his faith that he discovered who Christ really is. And then he commissions him. He says, you're Peter, you're, you're, you're this rock and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build on the faith that you bring to the table. Have you ever wondered what God would do in your life if you just exercise faith? Man, how good we are at making excuses. Are we not? I know that's an if you want to amen on, but we're all, if we're all honest, we are, aren't we? We're so good at making excuses, but what if we were just half as good at realizing God's already made a way? God said, I will go with you even to the ends of the earth. If it's of my will, I am in it and it will succeed. The problem with Christianity today 
is we don't act on our faith anymore. God said, I've saved you from something and for something. I've empowered you with spiritual gifts to go out and to change the world. What if we really believe that? What if we really got after it? In my Christian life, I've learned it's not about who I am or what I know, but who I know and how I sow. What I do matters and what I don't do matters. See, you're gonna see somebody today. You will leave this building. You will go into a public place. It may be family. It may be a job. It may be a store. But you're gonna look in the eyes of somebody that does not know Jesus today. And today, you will have the opportunity to extend the gospel to them or to not to. You have a choice to present them with eternal life or to just walk away because that'd be kind of weird, right? Sharing Jesus in public, who does that? It's 2021, be weird, be different, share the gospel. That's who Christ has called us to be. It's his hands and feet to the end of the world. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced revival before, but I have. I'll tell you, when God saved this guy, God saved this guy. I mean, he did a work in my life. I'd like to say I was like this great preacher and I witnessed all my friends. I didn't have to. The greatest sermon that I ever preached was the life that I lived. It was what Christ did in my life. People looked at you and said, dude, what happened to you? You're like weird now. You go to church and stuff. You don't come to parties anymore. You don't do X, Y, and Z. And I said, you're right, I don't. And this is why. Some would laugh, but many would come to church with me just to see what it was all about. Are people looking at your life and seeing a sermon or are they looking at your life and seeing what they see in a lost person's life? Do they look at you and see the living word or do they look at you and just see the world like everybody else? When we answer the question, who is Jesus? That's a big first step, but answering who am I is an even bigger second step. But that leads me to number three, who are we? Verses 18 and 19 conclude this for us. Verse 18, Peter, on this rock which I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I call this the mission statement of Jesus Christ. Like we like statements and signs and so forth, right? This is, this is Jesus's. He puts it right there for us, right in the text says, this is why I have come. Now understand, hermeneutically throughout the Gospels, we see there's this expectation that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom, right? Woo! Have you brought us out here? Is this, is this the new land property? Is this where we're going to be building the, the earthly kingdom that you've come to establish? They were missing it. He said, let me make this real clear for you. I've come to further establish my heavenly kingdom but also my church, which is the means of people getting there. My plan. I want to break this statement down for us this morning. First, I. He says, I will build my church. We're going to go through each one. I, this is the supremacy of Christ. Jesus will do it. Amen? Sounds so spiritual. It's like a cop-out, right? You want to say something really profound to somebody that's going through a hard time. Just be biblical. Jesus will do it. He said he will do it. He said he'll never leave you or forsake you, that he'll always be with you. Trust in him and follow him. I will build my church. When we first arrived to the greater Philadelphia area back in in 2010 when we went to plant Radiant Church, we did everything right. We had gone through a church planning school. We had aligned ourselves with a, a familiar network We had a sponsoring church. We had a sending church. We had done some deputation and started to align prayer partners and funding for this church plant. Within three days of us getting there, 
it pretty much fell completely apart. And I thought, well, I did everything right. And what I realized was I was following my plan to plant the church and not following God's plan to plant the church. The thing about my plan is it was a lot safer and I felt a lot more secure in it. Often when God calls us to works, it's out on the water, outside the boat, outside of our comfort zone to the places that he would have us to go where we have to trust in him and him alone. So he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. We got there and I realized we didn't have any funding. I realized that we had $100 support a month for the first six months that we were gonna be there. We were renting a 700 square foot bungalow right between the number one and number three most violent cities in America. Great place to raise kids, by the way. I'm joking. We had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and an infant at the time. And as we put our kids to bed that night, we, they all shared a single bed, and it was in a closet that we had made into a bedroom, and we tucked them all into this one bed, and my wife said, I'm gonna go to bed now. And I remember going to a corner in that house to talk with God, and I remember going in there and getting on my knees and said, God, this is your church. You have called me here to establish your church. I am just your steward. I am just your servant. If this thing fails, it's on you. Isn't it great using God as a cop-out? It's all on you, all the pressure, God. I'm just your preacher. There's a lot of freedom in that. And you know what God did? He built his church. I will do it. We didn't have any money. Our car died pulling into the driveway when we got there. Literally, I can't make this stuff up. I'm like, we're here, and my car died. I had 16 payments left. That'll bless you. 16 payments for something that sat there. Every day I'd walk by it. Lord bless you. I mean, I'm not charismatic, but I laid hands on that thing at times. I'll tell you. Lord, start this vehicle. We need it to start. I remember walking to the grocery store through the snow. You remember that, Vicky? Walking through to get just enough groceries to bring back because we didn't have a vehicle. So we did the only thing we really knew how to do, and that was share the gospel. We shared it with our neighbors. They got saved. Our first Bible study was with a gentleman who was the younger brother of a kid that I grew up with that I regarded as family who was in prison at the time. This guy came, and it was him and a doctor. You want to talk about first church service. The doctor just transferred from a church in Cincinnati and was working at Chop in Philly, and then the other guy is straight off the streets. And uh, he came in, he heard the gospel, he got saved. And before he left, I said, you can invite anybody you want here to the Bible study. He didn't even know what a Bible study was. And he said, Josh, you don't want the people that I know in your house. I said, we let you in here. If we let you in here, we'll pretty much let anybody else in here. And he said, all right, next week. I didn't know if he was going to come back or not. Oh, he came back and he brought friends with him. Because lost people know lost people. And his friends got saved and guess what they did? They went and they brought people with them. And before I knew it, we had more people than we could minister to. And I thought, God, this is awfully quick. So we had to go and rent a garage just up the street a little way, literally a garage that was not really a warehouse that we made into a church building. And that's where we met because it had a bathroom and we could fit more people in there and there was enough people coming to hear the gospel. Our first week there, a young, young lady got saved. And... Uh, I say young lady, she was like six years old. And after I baptized her, she came up out of the water and she said, uh, Pastor, I want my mom to get saved. Will you pray my mom will get saved? I want my mom to, to meet Jesus and to know Jesus as I know Jesus. And I, and I said, yeah, we'll pray for your mom. And about six weeks later, her mom comes to church on a Wednesday night. It's thunderstorming out. We almost didn't have church that night because it was so bad. And there was four people there. That's it, because it was storming so bad. All four came to know Jesus that night. And I stood at the pulpit 
And as, I, as I'm getting ready to preach, her mom comes and she sits down in the front row. And that's how you know something's wrong. No offense, but most people don't sit in the front row, right? And so I'm thinking, all right, you know, being from, being, being from the hood, right, Anthony? I'm, 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 I'm checking stuff out, making sure I know where my exits are. I'm, I'm checking the room, scanning everything. I go through, I preach. I say, if you want to come to know Jesus today, raise your hand. Everybody raises their hand. So I'm gonna, I, I figure I'll lead to, I'll have my wife lead to, who was in the kids' ministry at the time. I walk by them to grab my wife to lead this lady to the Lord. And as I walk by, she grabs my arm and she looks up at me and she's crying. And she goes, I want Jesus. I want Jesus. And she begins to weep. It wasn't awkward at all. It really wasn't. She's just weeping, holding onto my arm. I want Jesus. It was one of the most fantastic moments of my life. And she falls to her knees and she cries out to God to save her right there and, and then. And as she continued to clutch to my arm, I realized that she had track marks all up and down her arm. And she had been shooting heroin for about eight months prior to that. She was about 80 pounds soaking wet and was at death's door. And she later told me that she was making a decision to either go and get high in a very sketchy place or come to church that night. She came to church instead because somebody invited her, who was her six-year-old daughter. She got saved that night and has never touched dope since. When people say, oh, I've been saved but not out of addiction, it doesn't work that way for everybody, but it did for me and it did for her and it did for a lot of other people. The day I got saved, like a light switch, every addiction I had was gone. Every cold sweat I had was gone. Every desire for it was gone. I now had Jesus. Same for her and many others. What if Gianna never invited her mom to church? What would the future hold? She brought others that came to know Christ. God will do the work if we are faithful. Amen, amen. I'm glad you're with me. Will. Will is the plan. He says, I will. It's God's plan. He has a strategic plan for it. We can uh, institute all of the matriculation and you know, assimilation plans that we want within the local New Testament church, but God's given us a plan of how to present the gospel and make disciples. We had a lot of success there in these larger churches in the thousands would say, hey, can we have you come out and do a consultation? We need to know what it is that you're doing there. We need to know how your church is growing so fast. And I'd say, don't waste your money, I can tell you right now. We preach the gospel and we make disciples. It's really that easy. Problem is so many churches just aren't that good at it. We're not intentional. We're so focused on the next best thing that we've missed God's process of it. Preach the gospel. Jesus is enough. Make disciples. Teach them. Study to show yourself approved. Build the work of Christ. Have you ever built something? Got any architects in here, engineers? I know you're in real estate, Gary. Anybody else? Building's pretty hard stuff, isn't it? You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a blueprint. You've got to draw things out. You have to measure. You've got to make cuts. You've got to move stuff around. It's hard work. Guess what? The church is no different. Building churches is hard work. And if you think showing up once or twice a week, coming and sitting in a pew, singing some songs, listening to the preacher preach and leaving and doing nothing is gonna build God's church, you are wrong. You've gotta get after it. Why? Number one, because Christ told us to, because that's his mission. But number two, because there are people who are dying and going to hell who are depending on us to go and share the gospel with them. Woe unto us if we were to sit and stand here today and say, well, it's somebody else's job. That's not my ministry evangelism isn't something we need to pray about. That's something we've all been commissioned to go and do. That's why it's called the Great Commission and not the Great Suggestion. Somebody you know needs to hear the word of Christ. My possession. So often we say, my church, my church, right? That's great, we take ownership in the church, but the ownership really belongs to Christ. We're just stewards of it. 
Lastly, church transliterated the bride of Christ. You know this place we call a church is not the building. It's the people in this room that make it up. This is referred to as the bride in which Jesus is coming back for someday. He's coming back for you and we will give an account of how we've served his church, his bride. I pray that we do it well and that we're prepared for his coming because scripturally, I don't think it's gonna be long. I think the times are coming when he's gonna return here soon. In verse 19, he concludes his point here by saying, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Many mistake and abuse the scripture thinking that Jesus literally handed Peter keys and he's like, hey, when you pass on in heaven, I want you to stand at the gate. No one gets in or out without these keys. I mean, there are really religions that teach that out there. That's not what the text at all is saying. The term here in the Greek means authority badge. What he is saying is I'm giving you my authority to speak on my behalf to go out because I have already opened doors for you. Come on, somebody. There are doors in your life with the people that you know that God has already opened. You just need to walk through them. If you are saved and are being sanctified, God has entrusted you with the gospel in these situations. He is entrusting you to go and share the good news to these people. He's already opened the door. Saying, go, go. Why would we not go? People need us. People need the gospel. In the greater Philadelphia area, less than 1% of people can fit in a church building. If Jesus came out on some cloud and was like, hey, I'm gonna put you all on notice, everybody needs to be in a church building this week, not 1% of the population could fit. Less than 3% nationwide, especially in the metropolitan areas. We need to do a better job, church. Why? I'm glad you asked. Because there's people like Josh Todd that need to hear the gospel. As you sit here right now, there's someone somewhere in Springfield and Greene County and St. Louis and Philly and LA, in Australia, in Europe, in Africa, that is gonna breathe their last. And some of them may never hear of the gospel. They may know all about Jesus, but not know him personally. Right now, somebody's sticking a needle in their arm for the last time. They got a bad batch of dope, and they're gonna pass on into eternity. Somebody right now is preparing to end their life because they've been living too long with too much fear and too much hurt, too much pain, and they just want it to end. It ends when, when we give them the gospel. If you'll close your eyes and bow your heads.